Our text this morning is John 16, 25 through 33. We have been in the farewell discourse, it's called. It starts in chapter 14, covers 14, 15, 16, three chapters, this farewell discourse of Jesus. It's his last teaching before he goes to the cross. And we've been in the farewell discourse for a couple of months now, maybe three months. It's been a while. And we're going to wrap it up this morning. Next week, we're going to go into chapter 17, which is called the High Priestly Prayer of Jesus. We're going to take our time going through that because it's very rich with what we get to see there is is really the heart of Jesus, the heart of Jesus as he talks to his father. So as we wrap this up, let's go ahead and read verses 25 through 33 of chapter 16 in the Gospel of John. Jesus is speaking, and he says, I I have said these things to you in figures of speech. The hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figures of speech, but will tell you plainly about the Father. In that day you will ask in my name, and I do not say to you that I will ask the Father on your behalf, for the Father himself loves you, because you have loved me and have believed that I came from God. I came from the Father and have come into the world, and now I am leaving the world and going to the Father. His disciples said, Ah, now you are speaking plainly and not using figurative speech. Now we know that you know all things and do not need anyone to question you. This is why we believe that you came from God. Jesus answered them, Do you now believe? Behold, the hour is coming Indeed, it has come when you will be scattered each to his own home and will leave me alone. Yet I am not alone, for the Father is with me. I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart. I have overcome the world. This is God's word. So as I said, this is the last piece of Jesus' teaching to his disciples. He's speaking to them privately. He's teaching them about what to expect. And if you remember in the farewell discourse, there have been two great themes, the good news and the bad news. The good news is that the Holy Spirit will be with them. And the bad news is that they're going to experience suffering and hatred and persecution But then the good news again, that the Holy Spirit will be with them and and they will have a relationship with God like they've never really imagined was possible. And ultimately the good news wins. And that's that's how this sermon, if you will, that Jesus has given these men concludes with the, with the good news. But the truth is, and he never, he never pulls his punch as we looked at last week. The truth is that things are about to get worse for the disciples for a little while. And that's what he said last week, right? He said, a little while and you will see me no longer. And again, a little while and you will see me. So he's talking in terms of a short period of time. What he means by a little while is he's saying that the next 48 to 72 hours for these men, uh, they're going to be hard hard days, dark days. He's going to die and leave them. He will be buried in a tomb 
and he will be out of he, he will be out of their reach during that time. So things are going to get worse for the disciples for a little while. And then he says he's going back to be with the Father. So Jesus is leaving the, his disciples and he has told them to expect a lot of pain and opposition and hatred. And he says, in the world, you will have tribulation. And what this means is that tribulation, for those of you revelation buffs, it's not something that's off in the future, is it? We talk about it like it's in the future. It's real and it's present and they're in the midst of it. And for the disciples, tribulation was a reality and for us as well. Who's read the Left Behind books or one of the many Left Behind books? This, is, this reminds me of the plot of Left Behind because you have believers left behind and then they experience a tribulation. Well, these disciples were the ones who were left behind and the tribulation was already starting for them. So this is, this is what we're looking at. Jesus leaves these men. He's gonna leave them with the Holy Spirit. And he says, it's going to be better for you if I go and you, and you get the Spirit. But he's leaving them all the same and he's leaving them in a hard world. So here's the deal. Here's what we wanna talk about this morning. There, there has to be meaning in the midst of suffering for God's people. There has to be. There has to be meaning in the suffering for the disciples and for us. Because otherwise, this world is too hard, too hard to endure. Jesus is trying to impart that kernel, that little seed. He's trying to plant the seed of that meaning, that significance right here. He's trying to leave the disciples something to live on in the difficult days that are about to follow. So there's just two parts to this. It breaks down really, really evenly. 25 through 28, we see the love of God. That's where our significance comes from. And then in verses 29 through 33, we see the victory of Jesus. And that's our peace or our security. So first, let's look at the love of God. In verse 25, Jesus says, I've, I've said these things to you in figures of speech. And Jesus is famous for his parables, right? Jesus is known for speaking in riddles and proverbs and one-liners kind of veiling his meaning in these figures of speech. Uh, this was the nature of his, his teaching during the, all three years of his ministry in Israel. Um, do you remember in Matthew 13, do you remember there's a moment when the disciples, after hearing lots and lots of his parables, they say, why do you speak to them in parables? Why don't you teach them the way you teach us? And he, he actually answers them. And he says, um, he says, seeing they do not see and hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. Remember that? He says, there's a reason. I'm doing this on purpose. This isn't just my style. There's actually a purpose for doing, communicating in this way. And he's saying that's about to end. I'm all done with that now. It's about to end. So what changed? What is changing that Jesus is going to be able to speak to the disciples plainly about the Father, as he says in verse 25. What's changing? What makes it possible for Jesus to stop using this veiled speech? Because even the disciples, they had even clearer teaching than the public had from Jesus. Jesus almost only ever used parables with the public, but to these men, they received plainer teaching. But still, in the last, in the last passage, 
of chapter 16 and verse 21, he uses, he's still using a metaphor. He says, when a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. So he uses a metaphor there, and that's the figure of speech he's saying, I won't need those anymore. I can talk to you directly about the father. That's what he's saying. So I want you to imagine, imagine with me. Okay, how many of you have used Facebook? It's okay if you haven't. You'll still understand what I'm about to say. If you don't have a Facebook profile in the year 2023, I respect you. Good job. <laughs> don't, don't get one. Just hang in there. All right. So here's the thing. I want you to go back. I want to imagine going back and explaining to yourself 30 or 40 years ago. Kids, 30 or 40 years, that's just a long period of time that you're not familiar with yet. But 30 or 40 years ago, imagine where you were 30 or 40 years ago and imagine trying to explain to that version of you, to that person, how to tag a friend in a photo on Facebook. <laughs> Think of it. Do you know how to do it now? <laughs> okay. How about this one? How about, how about if you had to teach someone from the year 1965 how to rate a restaurant on Yelp, how would you do it? <laughs> What is Yelp? What is the internet? I mean, think of all the things you would have to explain. Think of it. What is a smartphone? Where are, you, where are you getting all of these screens that you're talking about? All of the things that you would have to do to explain that. What I'm trying to tell you is that the change that was coming for this, these men in their lifetime was even more significant than the digital re revolution has been, okay? So Jesus has been trying to explain things to them that they couldn't really understand until they saw him hanging on a cross. He's been trying to explain things about the kingdom of heaven. He's been trying to tell them about God, the Father, and the Holy Spirit. He's been trying to explain who he is in using any possible way he could figures of speech so that we could get it before they saw it, okay? Do you understand? There was something at the heart of Jesus's mission that nobody could understand until they saw it. And that was the love of God that was on display in his death. So when Jesus says the hour is coming when I won't need figures of speech, he means because you're gonna see it for yourself and then we can talk about it. And then we can talk about what you've seen, but you have to see it before it makes sense. And what this, one of the many things that this means is that the, the cross, the cross of Jesus revealed the full extent of God's love, the full, the full character and nature of God, all of his holiness, his justice, but also his mercy and his love, everything that you need to know about God was on display on the cross. And this is significant because it means that the heart of all faithful theology is this plain teaching, very plain teaching about the meaning of Christ's death and resurrection. The gospel is at the heart of all faithful theology for a reason, because you cannot begin to understand anything about God and his love without the cross. You understand? So this, what he's saying is, 
we're almost there and I can almost talk to you in the plainest terms about God the Father. Almost. He says the hour is coming in verse 25. So when you think about how would you explain the internet to to Thomas Edison? How would you explain an electromagnetic weapon to Napoleon Bonaparte? Now that we've all used Facebook and Yelp, we can speak plainly to each other about these things, but before the vocabulary didn't even exist, did it? We didn't even have the the words to use to explain it. And what I'm saying is that there weren't words to explain God's love in the way that it would be displayed on the cross by Jesus. You had to see it And then you could talk about it because the vocabulary of God's love begins with the sacrificial death of Jesus. It begins with the death of Jesus. That's where the love of God for sinners breaks into our world. Another way of looking at this is that the cross is easy to explain. It's a very, it's it's a quick and easy story to tell. Even the kids understand it. But the implications of the cross, what they tell us about God the Father, what they tell us about ourselves, those things take a lifetime to work out. Okay, so he says, in that day, in verse 26, you will ask in my name. And I do not say to you that I will ask the Father on your behalf, for the Father himself loves you because you have loved me and believed that I came from God. He says in verse 25, I will tell you plainly about the Father. And that's a promise. He's going to tell them plainly about the Father. Before in the farewell discourse, he's actually said that the Holy Spirit is going in in chapter 16, says in verse 13, when the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. So he's saying that through the spirit, he's gonna teach them everything they need to know about God and this world and everything else. He's gonna, it's all going to make sense once they see him on the cross. But I want you to notice one thing here that's very obvious to me, may not be obvious to you. Notice that Jesus doesn't talk about heaven. Do you see that? He doesn't talk about heaven. What does he talk about? The father He's not talking about heaven. He's not excited about heaven. Heaven's a a promise. It's there. Go read the last two chapters of Revelation. It's real. It's a promise. He's excited about the Father. It's the Father who excites him. It's the Father that he can't wait to show them. Can Can you feel the expectation? Can you feel... His heart, when he says, I will tell you plainly about the Father, I can't wait, we're almost there. That's what he's excited about. It's the Father that he speaks of as the real and ultimate blessing. In popular culture, the Christian message has been watered down into just going to heaven someday. But when Jesus talked about what mattered most to him, what he couldn't wait to give his people, he talked about the immediate experience of knowing God personally right now. That's what mattered to him, the Father. 
And Jesus calls that love. So what is the plainest? What is the plainest and the least veiled thing that Jesus could say about the Father to these men? What is the very plainest, simplest message that he could give them about God the Father? It's right there in verse 27. And it's something we all need to hear. The Father himself loves you. He loves you. He loves you and he wants to hear from you directly. That's why Jesus says, you won't need me to ask for you like it's a good thing. You won't need me to ask to bring your request to the Father. You can do it yourself. You can come directly to the throne of grace, as it says in Hebrews. You can come boldly. You will have access to God the Father in that way, and that's a good thing. Jesus is excited about the fact that they won't have to go through him to get to the Father. He thinks that's a good thing. For the Father himself loves you. Just by the way, this this is one of the things. I don't talk a lot about Roman Catholicism, but this is one of the things that is, the, to me, the most wrong about Roman Catholicism, which is the circuitous route that they have to take to get to God. They pray to saints. They ask the saints to pray to God. They ask Mary to pray to God. Jesus is saying, go straight to him because he loves you. Okay? That's a blessing. We should not take that for granted. If you're not experiencing that, it's probably because you're not praying very much. That's at least been my experience. So another way to think about this is that Jesus is pulling back a veil. He's pulling away a veil that's been in place since the beginning of Israelite religion in the desert of Sinai. Remember how their religion started? God is untouchable. You can't even touch the mountain that he's touching because you'll die. An animal who walks onto the mountain while God's presence is on the top of Mount Sinai will die. Don't let anything touch the mountain. That's who God was to them. And then he came and he lived in a tiny little square room where the high priest would meet with him once a year, one day a year. That was God, and Jesus is pulling that veil away, and he's saying to these men who know God in that way, he is not only my father, but he's your father. He's saying that the father loves you, and he loves you like a father loves, with all that that means. This is a big deal. should be a big deal to us, I'm trying to give you a taste of what a big deal it was to them. Jesus has great joy in revealing the Father directly to these men who have loved him. One of the things he's saying here is that you you love me and you should because I love you. I'm about to save you. I'm about to die on the cross for you. We love each other, but that's not the extent. That's not the full picture of this love because the Father loves you too. And you are gonna learn to love him and to have a direct relationship with him as well. 
So there's something coming for them. There's a lot of things that are coming. You realize, here's Jesus. He's one person of what we call the Trinity, the triune God, Jesus in the flesh. He was the easiest one for them to understand because he's right there. He's standing in front of them. He's been talking to them about the Spirit, and now he's talking to them about the Father. Do you see the triune nature of God? And do you see how Jesus is saying, you have been getting one person out of all of the three people who are for you in God. Do you see that? Saying, you have had me, but you're about to have three. That's what he's saying. And I really think that we ought to hear the excitement and the, and the just absolute joy in his voice that this is, he has the privilege of introducing them to their God in this new way. Have you ever, have you ever bought a birthday or Christmas gift that's, so good you almost couldn't wait to give it. Has that ever happened? I've had that experience a few times. Not all of my, not all of my birthday gifts are that good. We gave Isaiah birthday cash this week. <laughs> birthday cash is always good, good fallback. <laughs> but every once in a while you buy that gift and you see something in the store and you go, oh, that is perfect. That person is going to love this. And not only are they going to love it, they're going to know how much I love them through it. That's what Jesus is saying. That's, I believe, what's in his heart. He has this gift to give them, and we're almost there. He says the hour is coming. So Jesus knows what we need. Jesus knows what we need because he made us. And he knows that we need significance even more than we need comfort or pleasure or entertainment or sleep, or food, or anything else. Significance is what we're wired for. Why am I bringing that in right here? For the Father himself loves you. What's the connection? We long for meaning. We long for significance. We are wired for glory. That's what C.S. Lewis believed. He wrote in, in his famous essay, The Weight of Glory, he said, for glory means good report with God, acceptance by God, response, acknowledgement, and welcome into the heart of things. The door on which we have been knocking all our lives will open at last. In other words, to be loved by God, to be loved by the one who made you is the most meaningful experience that a human being could ever have. There is nothing more satisfying. There is nothing more meaningful, nothing more precious than that, than the love of God. When you believe in Jesus, you come home to the love of the one who dreamed you up in the beginning. He made you. He designed you the way you are. He loves you. You were a twinkle in his eye, and he made you happen. He formed you. Go read Psalm 139. You labored over me. You brought me into this world. You saw me in secret. You, you set my path before me. You wrote all of my days out in your book before I was even born. That's the way God cares about you. He loves you. Do you believe in Jesus Christ as your savior? Then he loves you. To be loved by God is the most meaningful thing that could ever happen to a person. That's there in your bulletin, in your sermon notes. To be loved by God 
is the most meaningful thing that can ever happen to a person. Before we move on, we need to stop right here. And I need to ask you, what do you make of God's love for you? What do you make of God's love for you? Is it important to you? Does it give your life meaning and purpose? It should. I mean, I know that some of you are feeling a little bit let down, that this is the big idea of today's sermon. God loves you. I know it because I feel it too. God loves me? I've known that since Sunday school when I was a kid. I know that. What else? Let me give you five reasons. And these aren't all of the reasons, but let me give you five reasons why the love of God may not be as meaningful to us as he means it to be, as it should be. Reason number one is that we've heard it too often without feeling it. Number two, we're not, we're not surprised that God loves us, really, because if we're honest, we think of ourselves as fairly lovable, fairly easy to love. Number three, we think of God's love as, as something that's automatic or reflexive. Don't we do this? It's part of our theology. It's part of our theological framework. Yeah, love is who God is. So of course he loves me. He loves everybody. God is love. Automatic and reflexive. That's number three. Number four is that human love has let us down too many times. We trust God, but it's the idea of love that we may not trust. That's number four. Number five is that we, th- we tend to think of God's love like a performance review. Um, that, he, that he loves us as much as we are obedient. That's the quantity of love that he has for us. It equals our performance. Those are five common reasons that the love of God may not mean as much to us as it should. Let me give you the solutions here. Number one, we've heard it too often without feeling it. That's because we're not praying. Prayer is where this primarily takes place. This exchange, knowing God, knowing his love. Number two, if we're not surprised at God's love because we think we're lovable, well, then we need to believe the other half of what the gospel tells us about ourselves, which is that we were unsavable until Jesus died on the cross. Charles Spurgeon said that while others are congratulating themselves on all the good things that they find within themselves, I have to sit humbly at the foot of Christ's cross and marvel that I'm saved at all. That's number two. Number three, if we think of God's love as automatic and reflexive and God is love, so of course he loves me. It's like it's a, like it's a robot loving. God is love. That is true, but he doesn't automatically love everybody. He only loves those who love and believe in his son. Look at verse 27. The father himself loves you because what? You have loved me and believed that I came from him. Okay? So God does not love everybody in this familial way. He is love. He does have a love for his whole creation. But this covenant love is reserved for his people, for the people of Jesus. Number four, 
if the, if the case is that human love's let us down too many times. And so we find it hard to trust the idea of love. Let me just tell you that the love of God is nothing like human love. It's pure and it never fails to do what's truly best for us because that's real love. It's not a feeling. I feel good about you. And that's what I mean when I say I love you. No, it's a steady pursuit of the other's good. That's what it means to love somebody. And number five, if we think of God's love like a performance review, he's a, I'm obedient this much, so he loves me this much. We need to remember that God does not wait for us to measure up before he loves us. His love is based on Christ's righteousness, not our own. If God's love seems too pedestrian for you, if it seems like a small thing to you that God loves you, this morning you need to hear it loud and clear. The Father himself loves you. That's the love of God. It's beautiful. Verse 29 through 33. Before we close, let's look at the victory of Jesus. So Jesus has said, the Father loves you like his own children, but how, are they, how do they know? How do they know that's true? As of right now, it's something that he's told them, but they just have to take it on faith that that's true. They have to take Jesus's word for it. And so in verse 29, they say, oh, okay, now you're speaking plainly. And now we know that you know all things uh, and you don't need anyone to question you. And this is why we believe that you came from God. What they're saying is you've convinced us. We get it. It's, it all makes sense now. Um, and we have sufficient evidence to believe in you. And our belief is a purely rational faith. You see that? And that's the way a lot of Christians approach God today as well. Oh, there's the evidence. I'll agree with that. Uh, that's, isn't that faith? Actually, no. Jesus says in verse 31, he says, do you, oh, do you now believe? You believe now. Okay. He says, behold, the hour is coming. Indeed, it has come when you will be scattered each to his own home and will leave me alone. Yet I am not alone for the Father is with me. Jesus tells him, don't be so sure. Don't be so sure that you've got it because you still haven't seen it. He knows they need to see it to go back to the beginning. They need to see it. He says, in a few hours, you're all gonna abandon me and I'm gonna die alone and friendless in this world. I'll have the Father, but you will all be nowhere to be found at that, at that moment. So in other words, they're saying that they can mentally accept what he's saying, but what he's saying is they haven't experienced the love of God the way that they need to in order to really believe. And now we come to the end of the farewell discourse, and Jesus says this, this is his famous line. This wraps up his teaching right here. He says, in the world, verse 33, you will have tribulation, but take heart. I have overcome the world. And that word, take heart, in the King James, I, I like what it says in the King James. It says, be of good cheer. Be of good cheer. It means cheer up. It means be bold, take courage, however you want to say it. I like, to tell you the truth, I like cheer up. 
What Jesus is saying here is cheer up. God loves you. What does that mean to you? What does that mean to you? Cheer up. God loves you. Can it really be that easy? Can facing the trials and the troubles of this life really be that simple? Is Jesus, is, is Jesus being trivial about our problems? That would not be good if he was. I just want to share, you, share with you one more thing before we close here. There's a man named Viktor Frankl. Do you know the name? He wrote a really famous book called Man's Search for Meaning in 1946. He was an Austrian psychologist from a Jewish family. He spent three years in four different concentration camps during World War II. His father died of starvation and pneumonia in a prison camp. His mother and brother were sent to the gas chambers in Auschwitz. His wife, Tilly, died of uh, typhus in a different camp without her husband. And he came out of the concentration camp and he wrote this book, Man's Search for Meaning. And it's considered one of the most influential books in history. It sold over 10 million copies, translated into 24 languages. The original title, it's a good German title, A Psychologist Experiences the Concentration Camp. That's what it's called. And uh, someone in, someone in the United States said, okay, let's call it Man's Search for Meaning. And that one stuck. Um, so here's, I want to share with you, though, Frankel's unusual conclusion about suffering. This sounds, when you consider that, that who he was and what he went through, this, this should sound a little unusual because this man reflected more deeply on the relationship between suffering and meaning than maybe anybody ever has since Christ or since Paul, we should say. He said this in that book. He wrote, in some ways, suffering ceases to be suffering at the moment it finds a meaning such as the meaning of a sacrifice. If there is meaning in life at all, then there must be meaning in suffering. Life is never made unbearable by circumstances, but only by lack of meaning and purpose. So don't miss what Frankl is saying here. He's saying what, what makes life really unbearable is not suffering. It's not our hard circumstances. And this is from a man who survived a Nazi prison camp. He's saying that's not really what makes life unlivable. What's really unbearable is meaninglessness. That's what he said. If you can't see the meaning in your suffering, then you just can't go on. That's what he observed in the concentration camp. And this is what Jesus is trying to tell us, folks. He has overcome the world with its troubles, with its tribulations, with its suffering with its relational conflict, with its chronic back pain, with everything else that the world has to throw at you, he's overcome it. He's overcome it. And in Colossians 1, verse 20, it says that he makes peace by the blood of his cross. So when it says here, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace, Jesus is not being trivial with you. He is not being flippant or trite about your problems because he makes this peace by the blood of his cross. That's what it cost him. In 1 John 4.10, it says, in this is love. In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation or the atonement for our sins. In other words, the, the, the definition or the standard 
of real love is that God sent his son to die for us on the cross. This was a costly piece. It's not shallow. It's not trivial. Jesus told the disciples that God loved them. And then the next day, he proved it. So I want to, in closing, I want to give you five ways that Jesus has overcome the world. Five ways with some scripture here. Number one, by resisting its temptations. We all know that Jesus was tempted three times by Satan after he fasted for 40 days. If you hadn't eaten for 40 days, could you resist a loaf of bread? I could not. I would have given into that temptation on about day two. He resisted its temptations. In Hebrew 4.15, he says, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in, who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. So he, he, he resisted the temptations of the world. That's number one. Number two, by enduring its trials. Jesus didn't just suffer on the cross. You thought about that? That wasn't his only suffering. It's not like he lived in a citadel with servants bringing him fruit all the time until his day came and then he went and died on the cross. He lived a hard life. He did manual labor for 30 years. He grew up in a poor family in a backwater town in Galilee. And then when his ministry started, things got harder, not easier. His last three years of life were a marathon of just false accusations and sneering insults and weak and doubting followers and meeting the needs of others while discipling his people. Jesus endured a life in this world that is harder than whatever you've been asked to live. And it says in Philippians 2 verse 7 that Jesus emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. He lived this life just like we did. Number three, he, he overcame the world by surpassing its pleasures, and he's still doing this. Jesus reveals the shallowness of everything that the world has to offer by offering himself to us. And in him, we find the, the genuine article of every counterfeit that the world holds out, all the trinkets that the world holds out in his hands. And in Colossians 2, verse 9, it says that in Christ, the whole fullness of the deity abides. Everything that God is right there in the person of Jesus. Number four, Jesus overcame the world by glorifying God. Jesus proved once and for all that God really does, really does abound in steadfast love and faithfulness. That's what God told Moses. That he said, that's my name. I am abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. And 1,500 years later on the cross, you could see it. God abounds in steadfast love and faithfulness. Otherwise, this would never happen. In John 1, verse 18, it says that no one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, that's Jesus, he has made him known. Jesus glorifies God in that way. And then number five, Jesus overcomes the world by saving his people. The men in that room, the men in the room listening to this teaching and the people in this room listening to this teaching are the clearest and the most enduring evidence of Christ's victory. 2,000 years later, how many people have tried to destroy the church? Here we are. Hebrews 7.25, he is able to save to the uttermost 
those who are drawn near to God through faith. And all of this adds up to this one magnificent fact, which is that Jesus has overcome the world by bringing the love of God down to us in the most immediate and convincing way. Jesus has overcome the world by bringing the love of God down to us in the most immediate and convincing way. He has done everything possible for you to believe that God loves you. And that's the meaning that he's trying to give you in the midst of your troubled life. In 1 John, John, the same John who wrote the Gospel of John, wrote the 1st and 2nd and 3rd John, and he wrote Revelation. In 1 John 5, verses 4 and 5, this is very interesting. You know, Jesus says, I've overcome the world. Listen to what John writes in these verses. He says, for everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? Three times, overcome the world. He's saying we overcome the world through faith in Jesus. He's saying every person who believes that Jesus has saved them and that God loves them because of Jesus and what he's done, every time that happens, the world is overcome again. So we're going we're gonna to sing, faith is the victory. It's not a hymn we've sung a lot in this church, but it is, it's based on John's words there. And we're going to sing that in a moment. Let's pray.